When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. Polynesian restaurants all over the place. 
and uh, you would go there mostly to have a poo-poo platter, which was a, a samplings of the different types of food. Uh, and then you would drink a Polynesian drink, like a Mai Tai, or you know, they had exotic uh, titles. And they had the tikis all over the place, and they had, like, thatched uh, roofs, and they had, uh, you know, a particular type of uh, music. Um, and uh, it, it created an atmosphere. And I remember uh, when I was a kid, you know, going there with my family, um, going there with uh, dates while in high school, you know, uh, uh, drinking toward the end of high school uh, in these Polynesian places. And uh, uh, they were great. And then they slowly started to disappear. And uh, I guess they're making a comeback. <clears throat> You're uh, correct on that, Hercules. Um, so I could kind of give a little rundown about that, how it came about, why there was a decline, and why it's kind of back real quick. That would be awesome. Okay. So uh, Michelle will speak a little bit later on the more like, you know, the gods and all the, like the real Polynesian stuff. So I'll take the more pop culture angle. Okay, so great. what you've kind of... So what you've experienced is basically, you know, tiki culture through what would be considered a tiki bar, or tiki restaurant. And all uh-huh. that is mostly to a guy named Ernest Raymond Beaumont Gant, uh, who is better known as Don the Beachcomber. So mm. way back before two, uh, Don Beach basically, you know, took to exploring the Pacific, uh, he brought back all these curios, uh, different bits of culture, different artifacts. And what he wound up doing is he wound up starting his own bar in, um, in L.A. Uh, in the 30s. It became Don, the original Don the Beachcombers. And he basically invented a lot of uh, these uh, exotic drinks, the Navy Grog, uh, the Mai Tai, although Trader Vic would say he invented it. He brought <laughs> over the poop platter. Um, and he basically set the whole foundation of tiki culture, the tiki bar, the drinks to have, and all that stuff. Then World War II happened, and so you had the Pacific Campaign, and you had uh, you know our soldiers over in the Pacific. And when the war was over, they brought back even more stuff with them. They got to you know <clears throat> experience Polynesian culture, South Pacific culture. Uh, island, uh, different islands and whatnot. And so when they came back, they brought also bits of what would become tiki culture with them. And so they wanted more of that, but now they're stateside. And so kind uh-huh. of right after World War II is when it exploded. Um, and before that, though, it was kind of there, you know, you had Hawaii becoming a state, the advent of ukulele music. And even prior to before that, you had you know, uh, Pacific expeditions and people doing travel logs on it. But it's really right after World War II, you had the first real tiki bar. You had, um, you know, Pacific-type restaurants that converted to tiki bars. You had all these soldiers coming back, bringing it with them. And it was basically coincided with post-war prosperity as well. Uh, Tiki bars spring up everywhere, um, and then you entered the other character, uh, who I uh, mentioned earlier, Trader Vic, although I can't remember his real uh-huh. name. Him and Don Beach were kind of rivals. Basically, they tried to one-up each other on drinks and mugs 
and all that stuff. And so, so basically through the 40s, 50s, and 60s is when this period flourished. Uh, you, you brought in – it also combines with uh, mid-century modern architecture, uh, kind of the atomic space age as well. They kind of mingle together for this – what we call it retro culture right now. But what uh-huh. happened was these. Uh, a couple things happened in the 70s. Is one, uh, Generation X was born. And as most people know, when a certain generation is born, the prior generation is not cool. You know, no. my parents are not cool. My parents' yeah. is parents to their parents aren't cool. And that's what, is what happens. So while yes, the baby boomers have geeky culture and whatnot, Generation X is like, well, we don't want that. You know, that's not cool to us. And so it combined that with, you know, other stuff in the, you know, the 70s, you know, from, you know, oil scare, uh, kind of the rise of violence, the the rise of, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, it was like tremulous time in the 70s, I would say, going into the 80s, you know, drugs, disease, and so forth. And so it seemed like tiki culture was wrong for all that. Here's some, you know, the world's going to shit now. Sorry, I didn't mean to swear. And it's okay. you want to escape to a tropical place that your parents went to? And so the 70s, 80s, and 90s killed tiki culture. Well, the 2000s came along, and now guess what? You skip a generation. Your parents aren't cool, but your grandparents are cool. <laughs> and they're cool tiki. And so, and that, that's, and we see, not just tiki, we see that with lots of cycles, music. You know, skips a generation. TV shows skip a generation, and we've talked about this earlier. How like the eighties yes. are in vogue now. We skip a generation, and so Tiki is very much in. Uh, it, it's you know the cycle has you know swung the pendulum um, in its favor, and especially combined with this retroism being in vogue in all sorts of uh, you know from. You know, the rise of pinup culture is back. You know, 80s culture is back. Tiki culture is back. Uh, Art Deco is back. You know, being a flapper uh, back in the era is back. It seems like now, and I don't really know the zeitgeist of it why, and there's probably a a research paper in there somewhere, but basically everyone wants to be in the past and not the present. And that could be for a variety of reasons, Uh, you know, you know, I, I'm of the millennial generation, so, you know, times don't look too good for, you know, my fellow friends. That might be part of it. Um, uh-huh. But right now, escaping to the past is very much in vogue right now, and hence one of the reasons why tiki culture is back. So, so that's kind of the really condensed version of its roots from pre-World War II to Don Beach, post-World War II and returning soldiers, the the combination of uh, post-war prosperity, atomic age, mid-century modern, uh, to its decline in the 70s, because it just wasn't the atmosphere for it anymore, uh, to it being back by now. Wow. A lot going on there with uh, food and drinks and, uh, and, and tchotchkes. It's, uh, it's amazing um, how much they inspired uh, uh, two generations uh, you know, over the past three. You know, it has been very inspirational because you see the tiki influence in a lot of stuff. I mean, pop culture-wise, you know, you had shows like Gilligan's Island, 
And mm-hmm. uh, what I'll talk about later, I hope, is, you know, Lynn Carter, Lovecraft and Tiki culture and how that's kind of a loop of inspiration. Um, but, you know, uh, they, they inspired uh, cocktails. Uh, there's usually, when it comes to cocktail making, a lot of the adage is people stick to the basics. They only have, like, maybe one or two alcohols in their drink. Like, a, a martini is basically, you know, vodka and vermouth and a little bit of, uh, if you want a dirty martini, a little bit of olive uh, juice in it. You know, um, uh, a margarita is just basically, you know, a tequila and contrail. So, you know, most mixology is, you know, the fewer spirits, the better. While tiki culture is like, no, 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 we want the complete opposite. We want to throw every single human thing possible in our drinks. <laughs> we want three different rums, two different fruit juices, six different syrups, all shaken up, served into a mug with outlandish garnishments of cherries and pineapples and swizzle sticks. It is supposed to be a huge experience. And, you know, so a very community. with alcohol. <laughs> What's that? It's opulence with alcohol, then. I, I would, you know, it is a little bit of opulence, but you know, the, the idea is like one drink is supposed to be able to send you to a tropical paradise, and oh. so yeah, I can see. That. <laughs> well, showing you know a sense of prosperity um, that hadn't really been seen since the 1920s, in between the First right. World War and the Second War, when we had a lot of decadence and and it's a similar decadence but now instead of being specifically in the cities you because of the prosperity and the rise of the um the suburban uh you know sprawl so to speak you know there was a new sense of decadence and 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 bring and because there was more city folk actually moving into these new urban environments they they brought these type of things with them, and um, personal tiki parties at your house. You didn't yeah. have to go to a bar; you could host your own. Well, and there may not have been a bar in the in the urban, you know, when you're in your track home. So you you, it was probably a sense of pride being able to put on these, uh, you know, tiki parties. Um, I'd like to bring up there is a uh, comic book series called Lady Killer. Uh, okay. written by uh, Joelle Jones. And in the first story arc, issues one through five, uh, she uh, she actually has part of the story within these different people's homes, and you get to see a little bit of that tiki culture in a, a residential environment, which is, you know, unique. So it's, it's uh-huh. definitely a, a good comic book series for people that would be interested in reading about the main character is, is a woman who is um, an undercover assassin. By day, she is basically a housewife with two children. She has the, the, the dream, the American dream, but she's also uh-huh. an assassin. And that, I, I won't talk anything more about it. Just go read the, the comic book. <laughs> no, that, the, was a, that was a great introduction to it Now I'm curious about it So I will definitely explore that Yeah, as a side note Michelle's actually presented us on that comic At a couple of the academic conferences It's, it's legit good. Oh, wow And it's a good uh, You know, 
that post-war prosperity, Cold War, you know, thawing type stuff. So, yeah, definitely check out Michelle's work on it. I most certainly will. Uh, that that sounds incredibly awesome. And uh, going uh, back to uh, the uh, the sword and sorcery and the sword and sandal and the sword and planet, um, Lemuria, which is also uh, something that uh, a story that arose in the Pacific, uh, Lemuria was actually a construct by scientists trying to explain how lemurs uh, got around that area. And they uh, surmised that there must have been a landmass. So they called that landmass Lemuria. And uh, that's where the lemurs uh, lived, and that's how they got so widely distributed. Uh, and then uh, they couldn't prove the existence of Lemuria, and eventually they uh, dumped it. But Lemuria had stirred the imagination of uh, people who were becoming aware of uh, Polynesian cultures and it's uh, more um, odd features, you know, like Easter Island and so forth. So uh, the idea that there was a civilization there inspired a lot of uh, people to write about this lost uh, continent, including uh, Lynn Carter, who set his uh, Thongor series there. And uh, um, Lynn Carter played this game even more uh, because he quoted some Indian scriptures uh, that spoke about uh, Maha Thangoya, the great Thangoya, you know, and, and he insisted that uh, he based uh, uh, Thango off a real character in some Indian scriptures. And I researched it as a kid. And I found out uh, way before the Internet. I had to go to the library and do all sorts of research. But that Lynn Carter made these all up uh, from whole cloth, but he... He painted the picture of this exotic uh, prehistoric land where uh, humans and gods and dinosaurs, uh, you know, all uh, kind of mingled uh, together. He did quote from existing theosophical texts and other uh, anthroposophical and, and metaphysical texts, uh, but uh, he also made up a lot of the, the background material that he based his uh, work on. So the tiki's seem to be something, you know, uh, similar in the sense that. Uh, they were kind of like dreams or impressions of uh, people who were um, attracted to uh, something, you know, whether symbolic or real in Polynesia. And uh, the, the story they wove together through drinks and food and artifacts uh, eventually you know, created a place where people can withdraw uh, from the uh, um, strictness of their civilization or the pressures of life to live in this kind of like a tropical paradise place, even if they were in the suburbs in America. So it shows you how powerful uh, our imagination is. Uh, Hercules, when was that series that Lynn Carter wrote? The Thongor? When was yeah, that? The Thongor series. Thongor is a Conan-esque type of uh, barbarian. Also, oh, back in the 80s? Um, he that? wrote oh. the books back in the 70s, I believe. Oh, Nick, okay. back in the 70s is when he wrote the books, right? Uh, the Thongor books? I believe so, because I think Lynn Carter really started his writing in the 60s and 70s, and the 70s is more of his sword and sorcery, sword and planet stuff. I'll pull up an article on it in a little bit. I do want to speak okay. more to you about Carter. Uh, in tiki stuff, but I'm going to take it back to Michelle because you were talking about 
you know, the role of tiki's and gods. If she could speak a little bit more about that. I'm looking forward sure. to that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm going to uh, reference a particular book that I read recently in my effort to kind of better understand about tiki. Um, of course, part of my interest is history um, and the ancient civilization, but I'm also very much... Wait, real quick. It is the 60s. Young Songor came out uh, 60s. The Wizard of Lemuria was 1965. Songor okay. of Lemuria was 1966. So we're, we're a ballpark. We knew it was one or the other. So, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, the reason Thank why you. I, I wondered, uh, you know, how much of an influence the Tiki was on his writing. And it sounds like, you know, he probably would have had that influence and then, you know, mediated that and you know, gurgitated it out into his own own art. And we'll definitely talk about that in a little bit, for sure. So, yeah, keep going. Okay. So, um, in addition to history, I'm very much into the art. Um, and so, one of the books that I've been, that I'm referencing this evening is called Night of the Tiki. It's okay. It's the art of schmaltz and selected primitive oceanic Carving, and it's written by Douglas A. Nasson, so it's N-A-S-O-N. And um, I like actually, Hercules, how you started the hour talking about your impressions of Kiki. Um, and this is something that I actually kind of like about this book is that first off it asks, well, what is Kiki? And like you, most of, most of us are familiar with Kiki through the, the various Polynesian catch that we've, we've experienced, whether it's the Enchanted Tiki Room when we were at Disneyland as a kid, um, or like Ulster, where we've gone to the tiki bars like Don the Beachcomber, Trader Vic's, um, and, you know, the experience, this, this very exotic drinking experience that had, you know, these gorgeous cocktails that, that seemed like they were special concoctions with tiny parasols and, you know, uh, you know, garnished with fruits and, and, you know, orchids and things like that. But, uh-huh. there, yeah, there really is kind of, Tiki is really kind of more, it is a person or pop, you know, an image, but it really endows a lot of different interpretations, which I thought was actually very interesting, and I think it's part of why we have trouble sometimes nailing down well, what is tiki. Or side note, why there's gatekeepers who try to decide what is and isn't tiki. Oh, no, that's a good point. Um, so to me, um, based on like what I was reading, um, Nasson, uh, he, he argues that conceptually, um, tiki is a confluence of oceanic art, which makes sense because he's talking in this book within an art sense. But he also goes on to say that it's really any anthropomorphic uh, image from Oceana. So, okay. um, so it's it's all different. You know, it's the tiki tiki god. Uh, you know, uh, statues that we see to uh, the jewelry and, and, you know, anything in between. But 
really kind of the most accepted seems to be Tiki as a human-like figure um, that's been carved from wood or from volcanic uh, tuff. And then, I didn't know this, but then it's it's kind of endowed or imbued with with, uh, superhuman powers. Um, Uh So it's actually kind of interesting, and it kind of goes to – some of the Christian upbringing that I have because this would be considered an idol. And I always thought, well, you know, it's just a figure, but, you know, they're looking at it as being, you know, well, if it's got superhuman powers and if it's an, if it's an idol to another God and things like that. So, you know, there's a lot of layers to it. Um, the uh, Polynesians are believed to actually come from the Southeast Asia area and that they mm-hmm. had migrated east and, and uh, settled in West Polynesia um, actually back in 1300 BC. So um, I thought that was that's actually quite a long time ago. Um, the other thing is that there are actually a lot of different myths. So, you know, we have that we have this, this male character um, predominantly is what we always think of when we see is these tiki statues, but actually in their um, in their origin stories, the story of Tiki is um, in the the Amori mythology. Tiki represents he is the first man that was created by the gods, and um, then he found the first woman in a pool, and so mm-hmm. that's kind of the, the the seed of all these various origin stories is that Tiki is the first man that he either created woman or that the gods created the woman. Um, and so, um, let's see, what I was going to say is there is a, a rather particularly nice story with regards to the Tiki. Um, and it kind of actually reminds me of the original Adam and Eve story in, in, a, in a sort of way, roundabout way. But in uh-huh. one of the stories of the, tiki, of the Tiki's is that um, Tiki was a lonely and that he craved company. And one day seeing his reflection in a pool, he thought he had found a companion and dove into the pool to seize, to seize that image. But it shattered, obviously, and, of course, Tiki was disappointed. So he fell asleep, and when he awoke, he saw the reflection again. So he covered the pool with earth and gave it birth to a woman. Tiki lived with her in serenity until one day the woman was excited by an eel, and her excitement passed to Tiki, and the first reproductive act resulted. And so what I never knew about in looking through the book is that Tiki is also um, very much associated with um, the reproductive or the sexual act. So you'll op- often see tiki's with um, an erect penis, um, mm-hmm. and and that also reminded me um, we don't often see um, because it, it tends to be kind of censored. But the ancient Egyptians also had a lot of statues that also had erect penises, and we almost never see those either. So I thought that was actually rather interesting that we've got a bit of censorship going on. Um, I think even today, if you were to 
your your local tiki uh, enchanted room, you're not going to see a tiki with a penis. So, um, <laughs> but um, that's kind of the kind of the the origin of tiki. It's related to the gods, and Tiki is usually the first man, and he's either created the first woman or the first woman has been created for him. And so that's kind of kind of the, the background, and it seems like all of the kind of different Polynesian uh, origin stories kind of all come from that kind of seed of, of an original idea. So that, that gives you a little background about the mythology. Wow, that, that's, a, uh, that's a very uh, comprehensive introduction to the mythology. And it is very interesting that, uh, um, that a um, deep-penist uh, creative uh, spirit, the first human, uh, would uh, make such a, a splash in our culture. And uh, it, it's surprising, too, because the uh, um, going native was part of the um, Polynesian experience in our minds, you know, and, and it entered into the tiki culture. Uh, and people would go and they would drink and they would let their, let their inhibitions down. And there were uh, hula girls, you know, dancing in a lot of these uh, uh, type of uh, places, as well as very uh, exotic, also fictional music. It wasn't the music of Polynesia in reality, but it was kind of like created uh, for the Tiki experience. So it's very interesting that they would uh, uh, essentially uh, um, neuter their, uh, the, the phallic god of letting go. So real quick about the music, um, Hercules, you'll probably like this little factoid. Um, okay. The genre of music that's employed by tiki culture is called exotica. In itself, it's kind of a, a smorgasbord of Polynesian music and uh, jungle music, tribal music, uh, Latin music. It's all kind of uh, mixed together. Um, the person who kind of gave it the name was Martin Vinnie or Vinnie Martin. I, I always reverse his name. Um, with uh-huh. the titular album Exotica. But the person who really created the first uh, Exotica album, which was called, uh, oh, I don't remember what it's called all time, but it was Les Baxter. And if you know, Les Baxter made many movie soundtracks, including sword and uh, sandal soundtracks, such as for uh, Goliath. Uh-huh. So a little bit of a mixture there that, you know, a sword. And a sandal musician went on to basically create the exotica genre that's used in tiki culture. <clears throat> I, I did not make that connection. Thank you for making it for me. So just to kind of finish up, um, both the, the Night of the Living Tiki, um, it, it really uh, focuses in on the art. So for listeners that are very much interested in the art aspect, um, Shag is uh, probably one of the, the most famous right now. Um, he's actually based out of Palm Springs, but he has really brought that um, that concept of tiki alive again in his art. It's very vibrant. Um, it's very mid-century. Uh, it incorporates not just 
you know, beautiful women and kind of the culture of the 50s, um, but it, is, it also integrates the architecture and it gives a kind of a brand new experience uh, while at the same time having a real sense of nostalgia. Um, two, two books that I would love to, to bring up related to more the, the mythology that if people are interested in, in looking further, um, there are a couple of books that are kind of seminal for um, Tiki. Um, one, okay. being by Thor, uh, one being by Thor uh, Heyerdahl. Um, okay. And it's called Tiki? The book is Khan-Tiki, and uh, the second one is uh, by Sir Peter Buck, and it's called Vikings of the Pacific. So if people are interested in in more about Tiki mythology and just having a better understanding of the early, early, early mythologies and conceptualization of Tiki and kind of its journey, uh, forward into the 20th century, I would definitely suggest those. Um, I think the other artist I would suggest, no, it's Ben, ben is actually, he's a writer, right? He's a writer. Oh, okay. So he's a, he's a writer, but um, Ben uh, Kirsten uh, has written a book called The Artist Tiki, which is a very good book. It's been put out by, um, uh, I'm not sure the publisher, but I think it's also been put out by Cashin. Um, and then I'd love to give a shout out to House to Taboo that is also, um, they do, uh, mugs and glasses, um, and we write for them. We, we write for oh, them. Awesome. Um, we write for the magazine, um, that is done by House of Taboo called Exotica, um, Modern. Okay. Exotica, M-O-D-E-R-N? Uh, with an E on the end. It's extra E. Yep. <clears throat> okay. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to make the links. Uh, you can keep talking. I'm just trying to find the stuff on the internet so I could uh, link it to the. There it is. Yeah. There you go. So. So I think that kind of segues back into more of the. Lovecraft. Well, yeah, because yes. now you've got a mythology uh, blending in with a more uh, Maori uh, mythology. <laughs> so while Michelle has talked about real mythology, I'd like to talk about fictional mythology, and that's our love for all things Lovecraft and Lynn Carter. That is awesome. Yes, uh, I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> so Lovecraft actually came about before Tiki happened. You know, Lovecraft was an author in the 20s and early 30s. So, you know, this was you know, uh, pretty much before Tiki really took off. However, both Tiki and Lovecraft, they share a lot of literary uh, influence. Um, you know, the, I actually have a book on Lovecraft's library, and I'm trying to go through it to try to isolate specific texts. So I'll have to report on that later. But, you know, like Call of Cthulhu is, you know, influenced by, you know, the tale of the Kraken, for instance. And if you notice, a lot of Lovecraft's writings are very Pacific-oriented. Call of Cthulhu Mm. takes place in the Pacific. Ryla is a sunken city in the Pacific. Um, Excuse me. Uh, 
the uh, one of his er- Dagon is a soldier or a sailor in the Pacific. He finds a, an island that uh, unearths, and you know he encounters a disciple of Dagon worshiping at a totem or a tiki, if you think of it in those terms. In Call of Cthulhu, the people worship little statues of Cthulhu, which are equivalent to tiki's. Um, wow. There, there's a lot of them there. He also draws a lot of Easter Island influence, and a lot of tiki culture draws from Easter Island. Uh, Haunter in the Dark draws from Easter Island and also mentions Lemuria as well. Um, if, uh, Mountains of Madness, uh, the, even though that takes place in Antarctica, they talk about all the underwater cities. And uh, Shadow over Innsmouth, even though that takes place in the, you know, New England area, you know, it alludes to the, you know, the people all live un- in underwater Atlantean-type cities, many of them in the Pacific as well. <clears throat> and so a lot of Lovecraft's writing is very, it, it's, I would say it, it's based on a lot of what Tiki literature is based on. But it's also tiki compatible because it has that fatuation with the Pacific, deities coming from the Pacific, primitivism and tribalism from the Pacific. And what Lovecraft started, I would say Lynn Carter put the nail in the coffin when he started writing his Lovecraft pastiches because in the 70s, he wrote tales that would have been uh, in the Zothic cycle. In all right. of, all of Lynn Carter's you know, he created the deity Zoth Amog, who lives in an underwater city in the Pacific. He created um, the Sanborn Institute of Pacific Antiquities, which studies, you know, primitivism, tribalism, artifacts from the Pacific. And so what Lovecraft just kind of flirted with, with Call of Cthulhu, Haunter in the Dark, and his other tales, you know, 30-some-odd years later, Lynn Carter picks it up and really nails in the head uh, the oceanic uh, attributes of Lovecraft. And, and that becomes important because, fast forward to today, um, people haven't really made the literary connection between Lovecraft and Tiki, and that's something I'm working on. But people do awesome. see that there is... Um, because you, there, there's an actual company called uh, called the Horror in Clay, which, if you remember that phrase, is one of the uh, sub-chapters of Call of Cthulhu. It's a Tiki company. They make Lovecraft-inspired Tiki mugs and paraphernalia. They have a Cthulhu mug. I would know because Michelle got it for me for my birthday, and it's an amazing mug. <laughs> They've got Smith mugs. They've got cartographic maps of where Ryla is in the Pacific, which echoes Tiki's statuation with maps of the Pacific. And so, you know, people are channeling into, you know, Lovecraft, the Lovecraft mythos, and Lovecraft's another one of those things that's really popular now. You know, uh, after yes. you know decades of, of you know unknownness, you know come you know the mid '80s, you know people start to reevaluate him, and now he's a cottage industry, which you know Michelle and I <laughs> freely take part of. Um, 
there is a huge crossover, or at least a huge compatibility between Tiki, its oceanic properties, its gods, its idols, its you know um, literature, to Lovecraft's fatuation with Oceana, idols, gods, and mythos. So they're very much, uh, they're not one in the same. They're not apples to apples, obviously. But uh-huh. they're, they're obviously bedfellows. And so I wanted to bring that up because, you know, early in the call, you know, we talk about Lynn Carter as, you know, sword and uh, planet, sword and sorcery. But I think through his Zothic uh, writings, you know, writing about uh, Zoth Amog and his other Lovecraft stuff, he's basically solidifying you know, Lovecraft's um, uh, relationship with Tiki culture that we see it now, just people haven't quite made the connections yet. And I can see both of you making those connections uh, for people, and I'm certainly seeing those connections more and more as our conversation uh, continues. And it's very fascinating, and it adds a whole new dimension to uh, uh, Lovecraft studies. Lovecraft studies, and I would like to, you know, uh, contribute to like Lynn Carter reevaluation studies because, you know, Lovecraft, it took, oh, 50 years for him to get reevaluated. And I know this isn't TQ related, but, you know, I don't think that reevaluation has happened for Lynn Carter yet. And so I want right. to be one of the people to help, you know, wave to say Lynn Carter was important because of, well, Maybe it was because a little bit having to do with tiki culture. <laughs> Maybe. Um, people are still writing uh, Thongor stories, by the way. You know, and you've sent me a couple of those books, and so that's one of the things I need to get caught up on as well because I didn't know too much about Thongor, and it's definitely something I want to incorporate into my own research when I start getting down to wanting to write about Lovecraft and Tiki. I mean, I, I, I've got other projects, uh, you know, going on right now. We talked about that in the previous yes. podcast, but it's back burner things I'm researching as I go, the connections between Lovecraft and Lovecraft-associated writers, I should clarify, and Tiki. In fact, I should even point out, Arkham House, that published Lovecraft stuff, you know, after he died, they, they had one of their pulp writers write an Easter Island book. So not quite Lovecraftian, but still in that circle of, uh, you know, pulp and Lovecraft and Tiki. Yeah, I'll have to find the name of it. You have to give me a second, but absolutely. Okay. I, um, Robert E. Howard, who created uh, Conan, uh, he was uh, pen pals with uh, Lovecraft. And even though they differed uh, um, sharply uh, in their opinions of various uh, things like barbarism and civilization and uh, um, race uh, and culture, you know, they had uh, very big differences in those areas, uh, but they did communicate uh, a lot. And uh, there have been a couple of books that explored uh, the relationships uh, between these two men and how it affected their uh, fiction. So it would be interesting to see one on Link Carter. Oh, it's so side note, it is related to Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos. It's called the Web of Easter Islands by Donald Wandry, and it came out from Arkham House in 1948. So, again, another connection between Pacifica, Oceana, and Lovecraft. That uh, is fascinating. It would be very interesting to see how uh, 
this affected uh, occultism as well, because all of these stories uh, uh, found their way into the uh, um, occultism of that era, and even now today. No, absolutely. I I believe... uh, I believe even uh, not Aleister Crowley, uh, uh, Anton LaVey drew from Lovecraft's Cthulhu stuff when yeah. he was writing the, uh, the the Satanic Bible. I believe. I, I know he drew from Aleister Crowley, but I believe he drew from Lovecraft as well. He also oh, yeah, wrote it's all, the uh, sections from other more obscure books at the time that didn't have a wide circulation. And uh, he lifted big chunks of, of the books and uh, almost word for word transplanted them in the Satanic Bible. Oh, and it was The Web of Easter Island by Donald Wandry. W-A-N-D-R-E-I. I have to check to see if it's in print. I found the uh, Wikipedia article for it. Yeah, I, I have a few. Uh, it might be a little hard for me to get my paws on that, but I do need to get my paws on that one at some point for my research. Now, uh, Michelle, how about how does the tiki uh, culture connect, uh, uh, whether ancient tiki culture or modern tiki culture, uh, to your Egyptian studies? Are there echoes? I know that uh, there have been uh, some anomalies found in uh, sculptures and bas reliefs. Uh, depicting uh, American-style uh, corn uh, and uh, coffee and chocolate, you know, the, the way the leaves are depicted, uh, also demonstrate that there was some contact. Is there anything more than that uh, in the literature? You know, um, I haven't found a particular connection between the two ancient cultures, but in a more modern sense, um, particularly like Shad, he will incorporate pop culture within uh, his various pieces. And so he actually has, and I have a, a small wood print uh, that he did where he has interjected the mummy into a few of his pieces. So he has a very nice uh, larger painting called, I think, Mummy Time, where it's basically uh, <laughs> Boris Karloff as the mummy, Reclining <laughs> in a chair <laughs> with a drink with a with an with a beautiful uh, Egyptian slave girl, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with a, a platter and tiki drinks, and you can and the uh, pyramids are in the background. Uh, there is a, a second uh, piece that, like the piece that I happen to have, where it's just uh, again Carlos in in mummy. Uh, in, a, in basically one of the lounge chairs, like beach lounge chairs, um, mm-hmm. with a drink, boxing. And then there's a third one where uh, he has, uh, well, there's, I think there's four. So the third one is uh, the mummy dancing uh, with a group of people in, like, the nightclub scene, kind of that early 60s you know, French chic, uh, chic type of thing going on. Uh, uh-huh. Kind of that new wave, you know, like we are so cool type of thing. Um, and there's a mummy dancing. Um, and then the fourth one is, is a one that I really like. It is, uh, uh, I can't, I misplaced the title in my mind, but it's a Cleopatra, and uh, she is modern dress, 
but has kind of the right makeup, and she's coming into a hotel, and she obviously rules the roost. And wow. um, so it's really kind of an interesting thing. But I like uh, this is a great segue, and it's, I think it's something that this is a great place to, to speak about it, is that the tiki culture trend just didn't happen here in the U.S. Um, it was happening all over the world. And so one of the other big places would have been like Cuba um, because you had a lot of the Americans going down to Cuba uh, during the 30s and 40s. And, you know, these, this culture went with them. And um, mm-hmm. I've I visited Cuba about uh, it, a bit over 10 years ago, um, and it is still very much kind of that atmosphere and kind of that scene. Um, and they do a lot of, you know, kind of nod back to that tiki culture. Um, the uh, other thing that I, that I want to say with regards to that is that there was um, an Egyptian who back in, I think in the, I think in the 40s, he was working at the Shepherd's Hotel and uh, he in was hmm? in Cairo. Yes, he was. He was in Cairo. Uh, he was a bartender at Shepherd's Hotel, and also he went on to uh, be a bartender elsewhere. But he uh, developed a drink uh, that is one of the tiki mainstay drinks. Um, and I'm going to swear, and I apologize, but it was the Suffering Bastard. And so that. Ha- Continued on in the tiki culture since that time. Um, Nick and I were just over in uh, Palm Springs in December, and we stayed at, or we actually went to the Reef, which is one of the tiki bars there. What was the name of the drink that was based off of that? It wasn't the Suffering Bastard. It was, but it was called something like that. It, 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 it's a they. They named it slightly different, but you totally know that that's the drink that they're talking about. So um, I, in my interest, uh, my interest is a little different than, than Nick. I, But I have a very great interest in this particular bartender and his... What's his name? You haven't said his name. <laughs> Joe uh, Salon is his name. And, okay. And um, so me to say actually his name. But um, he has a very interesting path. Um, I think he was actually, um, I think he was Jewish, actually. And uh, he got uh, into a little bit of trouble because he, because he was a bartender, and we all know that we can talk to our bartender and know that that's not going to go anywhere um, when we talk to our bartender and, and lay out all of our secrets. Um, uh-huh. He... <laughs> and was kind of um, charged or potentially suspected of being a, a spy. So he actually left uh, Egypt and eventually hooked up with uh, the Hilton family and became a bartender um, with the Hilton. And so he actually worked with that family, and he was instrumental in developing the drinks and kind of their tiki culture within the Hilton uh, chain. Um, and so he's a very interesting character. If, um, if anything, if you had a simile for him, he's basically like Rick to Casablanca. Okay. Okay. 
know, yeah. running the bar, you know, yeah. the, 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 the den of spies everywhere. He's kind of the center of it all. Yeah. Yeah, that actually makes perfect sense. And so, um, you know, but as far as like an ancient Egyptian, I would definitely have to look more towards the, the mythology uh, and make some some parallels with regard to that. And I just haven't gotten there yet. I am going to be uh, um, going through all my ancient astronaut stuff. I've been contacted by several publishers. I used to review that uh, quite extensively and cover it, uh, but I haven't been uh, for the past year or so. Uh, so I'm going to get back into that and start. There isn't a lot of information on uh, um, this type of uh, inquiry and uh, ancient Greece or Rome. There are a few books, but they're not really exhaustive and they're not very well researched. Uh, and some of the stories related therein are not real. <laughs> uh, the first time I heard them through the ancient astronaut uh, tales, it was like, that didn't happen. It's like, oh, no, it happened. It's like, no, I, uh, I've studied these things since childhood, and I'm sure there are things that I've missed. But something like this would have grabbed my attention. And then uh, Valet, Jacques Valet, in his uh, um, recent tome on the veracity of these uh, legends, also said that there's no reference of, of them at all in antiquity. And the, the first time they started popping up was like in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, these type of stories. So anyway, so I'm, I'm going to be busy with that. And if any connection between Polynesia and uh, Egypt uh, pops up because it's likely to in uh, in those type of books. Um, I will let you know about it, and uh, this way, uh, hopefully, it will make your quest uh, easier. My apologies for not knowing anything about that comic book series that you're researching. Oh no, not not a problem at all. But I definitely think you would probably have an interest in it, particularly the the first story arc, uh, which takes place, I think, in 1960. Um, and it's set in Seattle area, uh, the first story is one through five, and then they are forced to move. Um, her husband works with, uh, uh, I think he's an engineer with, like, Boeing, although that's not what they, they actually call out a company or anything like that. But uh, he moves, they, they all move to Florida. So I can just imagine that in the second story arc, there's a lot more of tiki and kind of that exotica type of culture within the pages of the second uh, the second story as well. You have to let me know what you think of it. Okay, great. If you send me the, the links, I will start exploring. Um, and uh, we can do a show on it at a later point when I'm uh, very familiar with the contents. Now, um, time, regardless of whether we spend half an hour, an hour, or two hours together, uh, is always too short. And I just looked at the clock, and we have six uh, more minutes uh, uh, till our, tonight's journey is at an end. Is there anything new and exciting uh, or um, coming soon that you would like to uh, share with our audience? Uh, I think this weekend we'll put the finishing touches on our hard literature book and get that out to the to the publisher. Uh, Very we got awesome. the final, so we're excited to close that chapter of our projects and move on to the next ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I shared the well last time. Oh, I finished my cyberpunk essay. That's been sent off, oh, and so awesome. now I'm turning. Huh. 
I'll let you know when it gets uh, published. I'm pretty proud of it. So my my attention now is turned to the um, Lovecraft uh, carnivalesque and vinegar teeth. And so probably by the next time uh, we speak, I should have a significant portion of that written. Fantastic. And Michelle, and, how and about I'm, you? Yeah, on my side, uh, as you remember, um, I was the editor of a little book called James Bond in Popular Culture um, about four years ago, and I was contacted about being interviewed for a documentary. Um, All right. That's awesome. Yeah. So um, it's it's a documentary for one of the local university film students um, here locally. Um, I don't know what might happen afterwards with it, but the, the... the fellow has spent a lot of time really trying to collect uh, interviews from a lot of people that have worked in the James Bond franchise, um, doing study and research and so forth. Um, and so it's kind of nice. Uh, you know, my, my first anthology I did um, keeps kind of giving back. Um, so that's kind of a neat thing. I'll, I'll have more to, to share in the next few weeks. To spin off that real quick. Go ahead. Michelle's, uh, Michelle's James Bond book is actually probably the biggest catalyst to get us into tiki culture. Because oh, uh, wow. at the time, uh, you know, Michelle was knee-deep in James Bond studies, and I was knee-deep into Italian Eurospy studies. And so we were always uh-huh. combing the Internet for, you know, James Bond and Eurospy research. And what I found was a YouTube channel called Distinguished Spirits. And they were uh, they were doing James Bond cocktails, and at this time oh, wow. I didn't really you know cocktail world too much. But I started watching these videos and like, okay, these James Bond inspired cocktails look pretty good to try. And I tried some of them. Some of them were hit and miss. But over time, the channel got done doing all the James Bond stuff and transitioned to doing tiki stuff. And at uh-huh. that time, you know, Michelle and I played tiki bar. We had a couple books, but it was, you know, seeing all these how-to-make-the-tiki drinks that I started exploring and really liking. And so, you know, we wouldn't have found that channel that really pushed us into the tiki culture if it hadn't been for the James Bond studies that, you know, we were doing a couple years ago that Michelle's book basically triggered. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. It, uh, the, the YouTube channel, again, is called Distinguished Spirits. And the James okay. Bond was the, I think it was Pussy Galore. Yeah, James um, Bond and Pussy Galore. Yeah, but he, okay. like Nick said, he's he gone. Yeah. yeah, and I totally forgot that that was a, a big push for us into the kind of the tiki, tiki world. Wow. Synchronicity is abound, and uh, I'm glad that that uh, book uh, uh, continues to open doors for both of you. Yeah, well, very. Yeah, it's 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 nice. Uh, Michelle just found out like five or six Wikipedia pages, you know, cite her work in that book. So yeah, it keeps right. growing and growing. And may continue to do so uh, and open even greater doors to opportunity for you. Yeah. Well, thank you so very much for being on uh, tonight. I 
as always, greatly enjoy speaking with you. Uh, I wish you both uh, the best, and I'm looking forward to our next conversation, which I know will be soon. Well, thank you very much, Hercules. We as always appreciate the time and, and really enjoy speaking with you. And like you said, you know, whether it's 30 minutes or an hour, it's never enough time, but that, that leaves us to have more to talk about next time. And we always appreciate you championing what we do, and we appreciate your listeners tuning in. Well, you're awesome people, so how can I not? Um, thanks again. <laughs> We're going to listen to uh, Bumpoats Orchestra's Evolve, uh, and then we will be back with the second half of our show.
interesting things uh, to it. The Seraphic Transports, Gods of Olympus, and Star Trek in the Urantia book. Without further ado, I will welcome Nick Curdo, Michael and Diane Duncan, um, back to uh, Pride of Olympus on a segment that isn't theirs. Greetings and welcome. <laughs> hey, beaming, in, beaming, beaming in from Manhattan. <laughs> Very awesome. I'm glad you're here. Um, I, I'm glad uh, today uh, we had a cancellation because the first thing I thought of is it'd be great to get everybody uh, together again like uh, we used to uh, fairly often. Uh, and I've missed you all. And, uh, you know, of course, you, you still have your own shows. Um, but uh, I missed uh, having these like uh, uh, impromptu conversations. So I'm very grateful that we could do it tonight. Uh, we are too. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Sounds now, good. Now, before we start, so that uh, folks who tune in on this day um, share a little bit about your background. Nick has been doing this excellent, so inspired me. And when uh, we revamp the show soon, it's going to be included in all the shows. So thank you, Nick. That was brilliant. Uh, and we'll start with you. Well, you know, if it was me and I'm a nurse, and I'm thinking, I would like to know just briefly a little bit about the background of the people talking on the show. I think that's really interesting to know where they were born from the Lord's family, what their schooling was, where they got their inspiration, how they, how they uh, used that inspiration to follow their path, and what is their path, that sort of thing. So I put that in my shows, and I think that works real well, and I've had a lot of yes, it people does. commenting. And then also, when they said that's so interesting because all the stories are different. All the stories are amazing. So anyhow, yeah, I think it's a great feature. Um, I was born in Springfield, Massachusetts. I went to college at the Massachusetts College of Art and Design in Boston, graduated with a design degree, graphics, and then um, got on a bus and came right straight to Manhattan to start my career in my uh, my new chapter of my life, and I've been here ever since. It's an amazing place. Energy is, is, is off the charts, and I found a great deal of the things that I've been looking for in my life by here meeting amazing people. So quickly, that's awesome. me. 
Thank you very much, and it's a, it's an awesome you, and I'm glad that our paths uh, crossed and that we're still on the um, similar paths and headed in the right direction. Uh, Michael and Diane? Well, hey, guys. Uh, nice to talk to you all again here. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, uh, let's see. Where shall we start here? Uh, should we start on this planet or the planet before? Or? <laughs> Wherever you would like. Wow. Okay, how about this planet? <laughs> well, okay. anyway, we're beaming in from uh, Mission Viejo, California tonight, guys. We uh-huh. uh, It's about, uh, oh, about an hour or so away from Los Angeles and about an hour or so north of San Diego. So we're kind of in the middle of San Diego and Los Angeles. We're about 40 minutes from Disneyland, and we're in a nice, uh, quiet um Quiet City, Mission Viejo here, which is really nice. It, it's been one of the uh, top five safest cities in America for, for a long time. So wow. we're, happy, we're happy to be here in uh, the in Maitreya's Temple Headquarters here in uh, uh-huh. Mission Viejo, California. <laughs> well, me, I, uh, let's see, um, who am I, what am I? You know, there are so many things that I am right now. Um, okay. I'll just uh, give you a little bit of background as far as maybe my college experience. That okay. might be a good place to start, kind of like what Nick did. Well, uh, I went to a uh, a college for two years called University of Laverne near um, near uh, Inland Empire, what we call the Inland Empire in California. We're in Orange County uh, right now, living here. So uh, I got into, uh, I was into soccer. I was a soccer player for uh, a long time, ever since I was about age four. So I wanted to be a professional soccer player. So my first college, the two-year college, University of Laverne, uh, I played soccer, and we won our Division Three championship, as a matter of fact, uh, in my first year. Uh, in my second year, I started uh, being looked at by scouts and things like that for, you know, semi-professional teams. Uh, but then I got into music and I got into choir and started taking voice lessons more. Uh, and I had a really neat choir tour in the state of Washington, and I was pretty much sold on music for the rest of my life. So I transferred to UC Irvine, kind of like UCLA, but only uh, Irvine, University of California at Irvine. So uh, it was there that I started really pursuing music. I was heading toward a Bachelor of Music degree. Uh, vocal performance was the, uh, was the, you know, the focus. Uh, it was then that I met Diane at UC Irvine, and we started getting into uh, religious studies, uh, theosophy, my trade great Tao in the early 1990s. Um, we have been together since what we met at UC Irvine in 1991 on May 8th. So we've been on a, we we found each other, so to speak. Uh, and we've been on a journey together, discovering God, and now our ministry has taken us to the magisterial mission uh, with Lord Maitreya, 
the 10-year plan. Um, I've become an interfaith minister, and uh, Diane and I are now now uh, looking forward to uh, helping the gods usher in the new worldwide religion of love. So, uh, and we're Urantia book readers, and we're Urantia book, and we're like Nick. I'm like Nick. I'm a past president of a Urantia book society, past president of Urantia book Los Angeles Society. So we continue to study the Urantia book, and as a matter of fact, our work is uh, framed through the Urantia book. So um, that's that's me. Thank <laughs> you, and it's a wonderful you, Diane. <laughs> yes, yes. Hi. Well, I'm a Colorado girl, born in uh, Colorado, and but when I was a baby, I came to California. So I I left California the day after I graduated high school, and my parents uh, took us to Colorado Springs, my brother and I, and there was when uh, my folks found Elizabeth Clare Prophet and Mark Prophet in the 1960s at the Broadmoor Hotel in Colorado Springs. And so uh, my parents wow. would uh, go to all of the meetings there at the Broadmoor, and I would be so excited, and I started reading all the material. And then um, in 1965, I was a runner-up, third runner-up in the Miss America contest of uh, Colorado Springs beauty contest for uh, evening gown talent and uh, swimsuit. <laughs> awesome. So third runner-up, and we had Miss America come visit us at the pageant. It was five nights, and it was really a thrilling thing. And so um, then I did melodrama, and I did singing at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, and some TV, some radio, a uh, really wonderful career there. Uh, moved back to California and got into theosophy with Grace Kanoki. Mm-hmm. She was the president of the um, American section. And she would have us come up to the mansion up in Altadena and have lunch with her. And we did that for a few years. She um, passed on, has since passed on, but she was a very close friend, and we loved her dearly. Um, we also got into the Rosicrucian uh, Society, and I loved that. We traveled to Arizona for meetings and uh, got to meet the people that were involved in that. Uh, in 1993... Uh, I got into Maitreya Great Dell uh, with uh, the Malaysia and Taiwan group and flew over there in 95 to talk to Grandmaster Wong, who was the head of that. And then, uh, of course, back here going to uh, more Elizabeth Clare Prophet's meetings, and uh, I did take some of my paintings to show the society here of uh, Ignatan and Nefertiti, King Tut, because uh, Elizabeth said that she was a reincarnation of Nefertiti. So <laughs> so I was big on, on doing the paintings for that. But uh, we've been with the Arantia Society since 2011, and uh, it's just been really a wonderful experience. Michael was president, just like Nick, and uh, I got to be on the board for um, four years. So it, it's been a great ride. We have raised three children Michael and I, and I have two before that that uh, are both fine pianists and 
and uh, college professors, both of them. <laughs> so I'm really having a wonderful life, and uh, I just thank uh, Nick for introducing us to Hercules because we dearly love you both. <laughs> yeah. The same here. Nick, you have a little bit of uh, static on your line, Nick. Yep. Yeah, I was testing the lines while we were speaking, and the, the static is uh, um, on your connection. Oh, um, it's, not, it's not good, Hercules? Uh, no, it's, not, it, you can't... It, it's fine. I can hear you clearly, but it's like occasionally there's like a little tinny, uh, it sounds like someone talking. Now it's stopped, so hopefully it'll, it'll stop. But I've been playing with it uh, as everybody's been uh, introducing themselves. Just want to let you know, though. Okay, um, I'm in a, a kind of a soundproof little room, so there's nothing coming in the room. But anyhow, yeah, we'll, we'll watch for connection. that. And it might not be heard at all, because sometimes you guys will hear interference and it won't show up in the show, and other times none of us will hear anything and there'll be some sort of interference. So uh, it's very unpredictable. But uh, I just want to let you know, just in case uh, it became like very loud or anything. Oh, um, no, okay. will do. Thanks, Thanks for the update. Adventure. Now, all of you have uh, found uh, the Urantia book, and uh, you all have extensive uh, religious histories before you found uh, the Urantia book. What exactly is it about the Urantia book uh, that resonates so powerfully with your spirit? And we'll start with Nick. Uh Uh, Well, as as I think I, I mentioned before, I found it when I was going to the Unitarian Church here in Manhattan, and I've been going for two years, and it's a smorgasbord of all the great world religions and spiritual callings that they read from. And after two years on a a bright and sunny uh, Sunday morning, they said for our last reading of the service, we're going to read from the Arantia book. And I thought, what in the world is that? I've never heard of it. Maybe it's Eastern Indian or something. It had such an amazing sound to Arantia. Anyhow, he read a couple of paragraphs and then said, you may go in peace, and everyone left the church. And I was hit by a spiritual truck, literally. I, I, I don't remember breathing. I just remember, oh, my God, I've been looking for this for all my life, and I just wow. heard. I mean, it was that much. It really, I'm not being dramatic. It really was like that. I sat in the pew for maybe 15 minutes just to catch my emotional breath. And I thought, I've got to remember that funny name, Urantia. <laughs> Anyhow, I did remember it. And I, uh, long story short, I found people that read the book. I went to a study group. And I was totally immersed in the teachings of the Urantia book and have been ever since. I have a study group wow. here in New York that meets uh, the first and third Sunday of the month from 1 to 2 o'clock. And um, we'll talk later about how they can access that if they want to. Uh, they certainly are more than welcome. It's free for one hour to really uh, read and discuss the uh, passages of the Arantia book. So very briefly, that's what happened. And I, uh, I honestly say that maybe the Arantia book found me. <laughs> that's a great way of looking at it. Uh, you've, uh, you've said that before, and I, I'd always like it. It's, uh, it. it says a lot. Oh, there's nothing wrong. I was just... Michael and Diane, how about you? Oh, well, Michael's pointing at me. <laughs> well, uh, my my family were from Colorado, 
But my family, we're all Seventh-day Adventists. And so my mother, um, well, she said Seventh-day Adventist, of course, since both her parents were and had been for uh, generations there. Uh, my grandmother was named after Ellen G. White, Ellen Gould White. And so um, I was raised to be a vegetarian and really try and uh, care about other people. The Seventh-day Adventists are, are really caring caring beautiful people that way. Um, my mother was a beautiful lady. Um, I became very interested in Ellen White. Uh, Ellen White created the Seventh-day Adventist religion. She was born in about 1826 and passed away in 1915. Well, mm-hmm. Ellen White was very involved with Dr. Sadler and Lena, his wife, and the Kellogg's, John Harvey Kellogg. She she almost raised John Harvey Kellogg since she was the age of 12. And John Harvey Kellogg mentored all of his nieces and nephews, the Kellogg's, from the Urantia papers. And uh-huh. so, <laughs> uh, so, and he also mentored 100 other Seventh-day Adventist ministers in wow. all of the teachings that Ellen had put out and so uh, the family were all from Seventh-day Adventist origin. And so I, I became immersed in Ellen White, uh, reading about her life. I, I, I found out that she had had a past life and that um, her name was actually put in the Arantia book. She was call, called Ellen, Eleonora from Panopsia which was a planet far, far away, and it was a human being, a young woman, Ellen, uh, who saved her planet from the Lucifer, kind of a Lucifer rebellion type of thing. That's in the Rancho book. So uh, I was just really immersed in that, and I finally came to writing a quite a long paper about Ellen White and raising John and then John... Um, mentoring his family, the Kellogg's, uh, with the Arantia papers. So, and then finally it was published in 1955. The book. Um, the, uh, book the Arantia book. book. They put the papers together, and Lena and the uh, Kellogg family uh, went over with telling and really putting it together and typing it all out. So, I, I have really a very solid connection. The Seventh-day Adventists were vegetarians. Um, they, um, you know, had a lot of the same um, precepts that are in the Arantia book uh, as far as uh, life after death and uh, other um, particular um, views of uh, religion. So, so the Arantia book has become... Uh, my book. <laughs> That's <Awesome>. my book. <laughs> Michael? Well, mine's not as exotic as that, I think. Uh, um, I would say that the Urantia book kind of made itself known, kind of like Nick, you know. Uh, the Urantia book made itself known to me. Uh, at a time when I needed the Urantia book, I think, in my life. Um, okay. Diane and I, Diane and I have raised uh, these three kids. We have two, two now, two still here, uh, whose whose mom passed away. Uh, there are nieces and nephews. Their mom mm-hmm. passed away about 12 years ago, and we took the children in. 
uh, you know, pretty challenging situation um, with the kids. Not the greatest care in the world did they have before they came. So, uh, you know, there was a lot of work to do. Um, and about, uh, I don't know, six or seven years ago, we had kind of a lull, you know, in our lives. Um, we needed something to bring us bring us back to God, so to speak, bring us back together, you know, kind of... Um, of tell us that we did have a life <laughs> before children. So, so you know, we've had the Arantia books in the home because uh, Diane's, Diane's mom and dad had, uh, you know, gotten the Arantia books a long time ago. So we had them in the home, and we 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 needed something to kind of get us back back in shape. So. Uh, one day I just uh, I just took out the Urantia book and started reading, um, you know, the Adam and Eve section, the material sons and daughters, and kind of gave me some hope there, you know, that because uh, Adam, the the material sons and daughters are are meant to you know arrive on a planet that's ripe for a, for an upstepping of humanity, you know, so it was kind of a you know inspirational section there. So then, um, so then, what happened was, um, I said, "Well, I want to, I want to delve into it a little bit more, you know, because I had read it over the years and explored a little bit here and there, but nothing really in depth, you know." So I decided, uh-huh. "Well, what do you think, Diane? Why don't we, you know, study a little bit more in depth, right?" And because the situation with the kids was pretty overwhelming, we were we were pretty burnt, a little spent, you know, burnt out a little bit. Three, three children, one a baby. <laughs> we were wow. we were kind of we were kind of spent. So so really hard mental studies at that time would have been pretty difficult. So what I did was I I bought the 1994 uh, Urantia book cassettes. It was a, a number of people in the Urantia Foundation who uh, recorded you know were recorded reading the different papers, and they were put together in these uh, 1994 cassettes. So I bought the cassettes, and I bought a little MP3 player, uh, you know, kind of like the iPod MP3 type player, uh-huh. and put, put all the cassettes onto the MP3 player and started listening to them at home with Diane on the on the, our CD player and in the car when I would drive to work and back from work. And it took me about two, three, four years, but uh, I got through the Urantia book twice from cover to cover, you know. And we've done a couple other studies, uh, you know, a couple topical studies here and there. And we've given some lectures and presented some things at Urantia events. Uh, but I would say that it kind of came to us at a very important time. And from that time, we began, the, the, this uh, ministry began opening up to us that we're in currently. And that is uh, our our work, our, our intimate work with uh, with our celestials, fa- our celestial fathers and mothers, and brothers and sisters who are, um, you know, are close at this time on our planet. So uh, so the Urantia book is and and during this time of this developing ministry since about 2011. 
we've had the opportunity to evaluate which direction our ministry should go in with, with the celestials, you know, because you you guys know, and, and of course, especially um, Hercules with your with your interfaith groups, that, you know, the gods have expressed themselves through many different modes and many different traditions and, and religions throughout the centuries. So we, we would evaluate and see, well, what should we use as a basis for this ministry, and the gods have said to us that uh, the Urantia book is the best mode for us because it gives the best uh, format for our ascension at this time, best format for uh, cosmology, for the way the hierarchy, cosmic hierarchy is working. Uh, Of course, you know, it gives a lot of generalities in that way, and we are we are what we're doing in our ministry is bringing some specifics a little bit more specifics about what the gods are doing what they want to accomplish how they want to communicate with us what they want to communicate with us at this time so the urantia book was a salvation but it was also a kickstarter for us in this ministry and now it's the basis for our ministry um, that, that is you know, uh, uh-huh um, Hercules, yeah. uh, I just wanted to say that, um, you know, Ellen White created a new religion for the world, the Seventh-day Adventist religion, in the 1860s, you know, with with uh, a couple others, her husband and so forth. And now we have 17 million baptized Seventh-day wow. Adventists. Yeah, 17 million. And then she raised John Harvey Kellogg from the age of 12, and he grew up to uh, also teach and educate a lot of the Seventh-day Adventist ministers. And then he went on to, with Ellen, because Dr. Sadler and Lena worked with Ellen, and she taught them, too, uh, and the other Kelloggs, uh, Lena's sister, Anna, and uh, Wilfred, Lena's uh, brother-in-law, all of them, and John Harvey Kellogg mentored them to bring the Rancho papers out to the world. So you had two major religious impacts on the world, and now we are trying to bring out a new religion for the world with the help of Gabriel and Mother Venus, the worldwide religion of love. And this will be the third big impact for the world. In a, in a short time, just in the last, since the 1860s. And and that is something that uh, I am very excited about. Uh, Nick, I'm going to try calling you back because I can't get rid of the, the static. So let me call you right back. All right. I'll hang, I'll hang up. Give me about a minute because I've got to uh, redo my phone. So just give me about a minute and a half and then call me, okay? Okay. No problem. Looking right. forward to having you back. Okay. Um, okay. Um, yes, I'm very excited about the religion of love. And um, one of the things that uh, excites me about uh, working with uh, the both of you and working with Nick is that uh, um, the, the gods have been very chatty <laughs> through <laughs> all of you in terms of uh, giving me information. And although this happens with other sources, uh, the amount of uh, contact and information, and not only through you, I'll get verifications through you um, remarkably um, often. 
So uh, um, the gods have been talking through uh, uh, both of you. And uh, so I'm very excited uh, by that. And I've been getting the same confirmations through people in the heart center uh, and through some uh, magical uh, orders that I'm working with, uh, as well as in my own meditations. So uh, it is very uh, uh, humbling, um, but also very uh, reassuring to have that uh, happen. So, well, uh, you know, um, um, Ellen White, she would talk to uh, angels, and she traveled to other planets, and mm-hmm. uh, the, the Father talked to her, and the angel of the Lord was with her almost all the time. And she related in her visions, uh, talking to these celestials and people that uh, we hear about in the Bible and so forth. So we know this, this type of thing can happen. Yes. And we have been so fortunate that uh, on December the 19th, 2013, um, the local universe father came to me to get me. <laughs> he came to get me and took me to where he was, Wadsworth Mansion at that time, which was the headquarters on this earth. And I just feel so blessed. But but I know that it happens because you read about other people that it happens to. And if it could happen to other people, it could certainly happen to you. I believe that very firmly <laughs> as well. Um, I'm going to try dialing uh, Nick and let's see if we can. Oh, anything. sure. And let's see. Hello? Hi, Nick. Can you hear us? Yes, I can. How are you? How am I coming in now? You're to me, coming in crystal clear. <laughs> oh, good. God only knows why that sometimes happens, but uh, same equipment, same position in the apartment, and anyhow, yeah. I'm glad it's better. <laughs> me, me too. Oh, we're glad uh, while, <laughs> while you were um, away for a few minutes, uh, basically I was telling uh, Michael and Diane that I'm very excited with working with uh, the three of you um, and I'm excited about coming to your meetings in uh, New York as often as I can uh, because I get things that come to me in my own meditations, you know, communications from uh, uh, the Olympians, the Celestials, uh, are repeated to me with great regularity through our conversations. So I get this through other people as well. The, the universe seems to want to keep me on track, so uh, I'm very grateful for that. Um, but uh, uh, it really started ha- like the, the faucet went from a drip to a trickle to now it's on all the time uh, when wow. uh, the uh-huh. universe father uh, revealed to, uh, to the Duncans that he was actually Zeus. And, uh, you know, some yeah. of the things they told me were things that had come to me during the meditation uh, that I guess I didn't want to uh, look at very uh um, strongly, and uh, I was given no choice because I was getting messages from them, messages from elsewhere in my meditations, in my dreams, and then in random conversations. It was like a Twilight Zone episode. Uh, so anyway, once I worked through that, uh, um, yeah, I'm very grateful to have it. So I'm very 
Um, even though I would say I'm very ignorant about the Urantia book, I, I know a lot more now than I did when we started this journey. Um, but uh, uh, the Urantia book and the individuals who are readers of the Urantia book um, seem to be the ones that are giving me uh, you know, very powerfully uh, the messages that I need to hear. Uh, and this religion of uh, love also. Aphrodite had started working my life uh, years ago. Oh, and uh, she had spoken about, uh, not specifically, but about something in the world. And uh, uh, yeah. Nick knows from Facebook that I would always put, uh, like, blessings for love on Fridays, which are Aphrodite's day. And now I, I, yeah. I'm doing it uh, more often uh, and also in my interactions with people. So I'm very excited about the uh, religion of love. Nick, what do you think about the religion of love? I, I think it's time has certainly come, especially now. This uh, 2019 has never needed the the philosophy and the religion of love more. And we worldwide, uh, I think a lot of people are feeling that. I hear comments all the time, including from my Disclosure Network New York group, of this is the time, this is a pivotal moment, and we are yes. all feeling that very, very much. And I got to say one thing, and I want—I think that you all will agree with me—that sometimes the celestials are very, very pushy. Yes. <laughs> they are very, very pushy. When they want something, they are—they do not—they do not—they go forward. They give it to you and to to Hercules and to Diane and to Michael and to me and others, and they say, "Hey guys, it's time." We're, ty- we're, we're tapping you on the shoulder right now. Pay attention, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, Nick, you, you are so right. You are so right. We can feel um, it. We, just, we really um, can feel it. And we've all said that, too. I mean, uh, the conversations we've had um, all seem to say that same, that same theory, that we are yeah. being tapped on the shoulder. Oh, we definitely are. <laughs> And we've all responded, and uh, we're very fortunate to be in contact with each other because it keeps us motivated. Mm -hmm. Uh, It uh, shows us that we're not alone. It shows us that we're indeed communicating with the celestial. So it's a very big blessing. So thank you. And also, I think that the the listeners, I think the listeners out there, um, hopefully, and I think that they are getting and sharing some of the uh, ideas and the feelings that we are putting forth. And that is very exciting to me that there are people out there that are listening and, and, and maybe they're dreaming too of a better world. And we can certainly use the help in bringing that uh, about. So if anybody's interested, uh, you can contact any of us uh, and uh, we will be sure to uh, connect you with who you need to be uh, connected with. Um, I, I'm looking at the clock. The time is like zooming. So I want to touch on some of the topics that were in the uh, title. Um, seraphic transports. I first learned of these through Michael. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, seraphic transports? Yes. Uh, seraphic transport. Uh, seraphim. Seraphim who uh, in the Arantia book were, are talked about as uh, uh as transporters, and what they do is they transport beings to different places throughout the universe. So, so they would be equivalent to like UFOs or or uh, sun chariots or glowing balls of light uh, uh, that some people report that, that take them to know, 
other you know, uh, planetary or dimensional places. Yeah, I, w- I would imagine so. And I, I would I would say that the word you used is very key, dimensional, because I think that, uh, you know, we have in the Ranch book, we have uh, an ascending career. We, we have the picture of an ascending career where ascenders are going from sphere to sphere, uh, going through classrooms, going through experiences that uh, propel them upward on their ascending career. Uh, we also have beings that are created in perfection who go down to help those that are ascending. And there has to be travel. There has to be travel of some sort to get all of these uh all of these people or personalities, celestials, all of these folks, <laughs> I don't know if that's the best term, but all these folks around to these material spheres, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I I have the feeling because, you know, uh, the, uh, the seraphim are also involved with transporting, with transporting uh, souls to different okay. places too, not just their physical bodies. So it seems to me like there's a lot going on. There's a lot of different travel, different types of travel going on at the same time, a physical travel, but yet there's a, a travel on other planes, you know, to to uh, transport uh, more finer bodies like soul, spirit, personality to different places as well. So I think that there are probably many levels that the that the transport seraphim work on, you know. Uh, and, hey, you can't discount, you can't discount, uh, you know, the idea of UFOs and vehicles, other vehicles and other UFOs that could transport uh, physical bodies around, too. You know what I mean? Um, yes. You know, maybe from planet to planet, there's a different type of uh, being or a different type of machinery that uh, that transport us, um, but but there's a general seraphic transport in the Arantia book, which I think is so beautiful. Uh, the the wings of the of the seraphim enfold the 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 person to be transported, and it seems like a very beautiful a beautiful way that they take off and that they travel uh, in the Arantia book. It's very beautifully portrayed. Yeah, um, I just wanted to mention, too, that uh, Phil and Hercules, that we have a member of our Urantia Society. Nick Nick and Hercules. Yeah, Nick and Hercules, uh, Phil Calabrese. Uh, Nick, do you know Phil Calabrese? I I do not. Okay, he was uh, on our board here. Michael was president, and he was our education chair for a while. But uh, Phil Calabrese did some scientific studies uh, about this, and you can find um, him in one of Martin Gardner's book, uh, his book on the Arantia book, and he does talk about the speed and so forth of um, the transportation of these seraphic uh, transporters in that book, and it gives you a scientific um, look at it and what uh, is done in the Arantia book. So well, Phil Calabrese in the, uh, Martin Gardner's book does go into that. I will definitely check that out. Um, I uh, have paper 39 uh, titled The Seraphic Host, and mm-hmm. there's on uh, page 438. I don't know if you have your, your ranch book 
Um, yeah. Michael does. He's just gone upstairs, so I think to find the Martin Garner book. Uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead, Nick. Go ahead. I'll be back down go ahead. If, I would like to, if I may, read a little bit of that because it's covering oh, sure. exactly what, what we're talking about. And it will blow, well, it, it blows me away every time I read it. And I think that the, the listeners also will get a lot from it. So, uh, Hercules, with your permission, may I, may I read this? Oh, sure. Okay, here we go. Uh, It's on page 438, uh, number 5. It's called The Transporters. The planetary transporters serve the individual worlds. The majority of enstrapted beings brought to this planet are in transit. They merely stop over. They are in custody of their own special seraphic transporters. But there are a large number of such seraphim stationed in Urantia. These are the transport personalities operating from the local planets as from Urantia to Jerusalem. Your conventional idea of angels has been derived in the following way. During moments just prior to physical death, a reflective phenomenon sometimes occurs in the human mind. And this dimming in consciousness seems visually something of the form of an attending angel. And this is immediately translated into terms of the ritual concept of angels held in that individual's mind. The erroneous idea that angels possess wings is not, is not wholly due to old notions that they must have wings to fly through the air. Human beings have sometimes been permitted to observe seraphim that were being prepared for transport service, and these traditions of these experiences have largely determined the Arantian concept of angels. In observing a transport seraphim being made ready to receive a passenger for interplanetary transit, there may seem what are apparently double sets of wings extended from the head to the foot of the angel. In reality, these wings are energy insulators, friction shields. How interesting is that? When that is celestial right. beings are in, in syrupped for transfer from one world to another, they are brought to the headquarters of the sphere and, after due registry, are indicted in the transit sleep. Meantime, the transit seraphim moves into a horizontal position immediately above the universe energy pole of the planet. There are energy shields are wide open and sleeping personalities are skillfully deposited by the officiating seraphic assistants directly on top of the transport angel. Then both the upper and lower pairs of shields are carefully closed and adjusted. And now, under the influence of the transformers and the transmitters, a strange metamorphosis begins as the seraphim is made ready to swing into energy circuits of the universe circuits. Uh, to onward appearance, the seraphim, the seraphim grows pointed as both extremities and becomes an enshrined in a queer light of amber hue that is very soon 
to be impossible to distinguish from the inseruptum personality. When all of the readiness for departure, the chief of transport makes the proper inspection of the carriage of life, carries out the routine tests to, to assert whether or not the angel is properly encircled, and then announces that the traveler is properly in seraphimed, that the energies are adjusted, and the angel is insulated, and that everything is in readiness for the departing flash. Just a little more of this. Isn't this interesting? The mechanical controllers, two of them, take, next take their positions. By this time, the transport seraphim has become an almost transparent, vibrating, torpedo-shaped outline of glistening luminosity. Now the transport dispatcher of the realm summons the auxiliary batteries and the living energy transmitters, usually 1,000 in number. As he announces the destination of the transport, he reaches out and touches the near point of the seraphic carriage, which shoots forward with lightning-like speed, leaving a trail of celestial luminosity as far as the planetary atmosphere intends. In less than 10 minutes, the marvelous spectacle will be lost even to reinforced seraphic vision. While the planetary space reports are received at noon at the meridian of the designated spiritual headquarters, the transporters are dispatched from the same place at midnight. That is the most favorable time for departure and is the standard hour when not otherwise specified. That's the end of that particular passage. That sounds a lot like uh, when I came to the meeting recently, uh, and a few people were pointing out that it seems like some sort of artificial intelligence or uh, like a, uh, um, you know, some sort of uh, living being, the same way the Bible describes some of the aircraft as living beings. So uh, they might have artificial intelligence. They might have been, you know, created uh, to transport people uh, uh, planetarily or dimensionally. Uh, but uh, it, it certainly doesn't sound like a living being the way a human or a mortal would understand that term. Absolutely true. And, and also the fact that this is a, as you can, as you listening to this, this is a very physical, very technical uh, set of circumstances here. It's not, it's not just a, a mind, boom, you're from one place to another. This is very highly technical and skilled, and I thought that was very interesting. Yes. Well, um, you know, we're, oh, we're go ahead. approaching the end of the hour, so uh, everyone add what you need to add, and then we'll do the contact information. Okay. Uh, he said to add what we need to add, and then we're going to do contact information. Um yeah, just wanted to add a little bit to that. Thank you, Nick, for that. Uh, that's see, I told you it was a beautiful description, and you did that so 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 well. Um, so well, yes. And, yes, and uh, you know we were talking about Phil Calabrese because uh, he's been, uh, you know, he's been in scientific symposiums. They have or symposia. They have those for the Ranch Book every once in a while, um, and Phil Calabrese is a mathematician. 
So he tried to work out, you know, the speed of uh, of ser- seraphim and seraphic travel and all that, and they they found some contradictions and things like that um, over the years, you know, because they're it, it's tricky. It's tricky with there are a lot of numbers. Um, so on uh, page 260 of the Arantia book, we're told that seraphim travel about three times faster than light. Uh, on page 569, we learn, and this is from Gardner's book. I'm reading from Gardner's book. <clears throat> on page 569 in the Urantia book, we learn that when we die, our sleeping soul is transported from Urantia to the first mansion world, which orbits Jerusalem in just three days. Alpha Centauri, the star uh, you know, nearest the Earth, aside from our sun, is more than four light years away. A seraphim going at triple light speed would need more than a year to get to our nearest star, let alone to Jerusalem, which is much more distant. So <clears throat> there are some discrepancies, you know, with what science has found out and what the Arantia book says about seraphim, and they're trying to work that out. I'm sure there's a plausible, you know, uh, there's yeah. a plausible, because, you know, we've, we have found that the Arantia book is a, is a general description and a general presentation of things, but that things are so much more complex than than we could probably even imagine. So, like, just one other thing here. It could be that other beings help, too, in this travel, in this seraphic travel. Because, look, it says that uh, in Paper 23 uh, that there are 7,000, <clears throat> excuse me, there are 7,960 trillion solitary messengers that operate in Orvantan alone, and that this is one-seventh of their total number. Now, to render their seven different kinds of service, these divine counselors, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, solitary messengers, they travel, get this, at 841 billion... 621,642,000 miles per second. Wow. <laughs> and even this incredible speed, and this is in Gardner's book, even this incredible speed is nothing compared to that of gravity messengers from Divinnington, which are described in the Arantia book, pages 346-347. They transcend space and time by going from point A to point B instantaneously. <laughs> wow. Oh, oh, I like that one. I like that a lot because then, then you're right there. You don't have to wait. I like that. So maybe it's like maybe it's like you take a, you take a seraphic transport maybe to like the first mansion world, and then you get on a, another flight. You know, you know, you do like a transfer flight, and you you hop on a, a you know a solitary messenger or something like that. So I'm sure it's so much more complex than that. And and Hercules. What is the lobby? What is the lobby like between transport? Wow. I mean, think of that. What in the world are they serving? Oh my goodness. <laughs> you can imagine that there are so many different modes of travel for so many different circumstances, you know, but uh, the, the, the ranch book is a beautiful description of that uh, seraphic transport. Yes. Yeah. And thank you for sharing it. Uh, we learned a great deal more today than last time we talked about this. And uh, we touched upon the Olympian uh, gods, which uh, are going to be expanded. Uh, that topic will be expanded upon next week on your show. 
And mm-hmm. uh, so yeah. Mark, the next time we get together <laughs> and have a talk. Uh, thanks to all of you for being on. You're awesome individuals, and I'm, I'm glad we had a chance uh, to connect today. Uh, as I said, I've missed you all. Um, I oh, put down, um, Nick, your Facebook page. I put down the uh, Urantia book where people can read it for free. And I put down also uh, this uh, Urantia book, New York, the link. Uh, and oh, excellent. Michael, Thank you very I, much. There's a lot of information on that. And, and you can also, of course, read and also listen to the Urantia book. It's now in 22 languages, and there's 10 more on the way. Can you believe wow. that? Wow. <laughs> And uh, Michael and Diane, I put a link to your uh, Facebook uh, channel, which is always growing. Um, and uh, is there any other contact information you'd like to share oh. before we sign out? Oh, yeah, that's our YouTube channel, uh-huh. uh, yeah. Hercules. Uh-huh. What did I say? Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, Facebook. I'm sorry. Yeah, we, don't, we don't have Facebook. We have YouTube. Yeah, we're, we're working. Uh, you know, they've told us to pretty much work with YouTube with uh-huh. the videos. So we're, we have a, a YouTube channel is Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L. Second word is and. Third word, Diane, D-I-A-N-N-E. And our last name, Duncan, D-U-N-K-I-N. That's Michael and Diane Duncan is our YouTube channel. We have over 60 videos now of our team meetings. Wow. And, Oh, yeah, we're working. (laughs) Um, We just have had several meetings from Poseidon and Athena, and we are really excited. Those will blow your mind. I I never dreamed (laughs) they would get so um, uh, explicit with us on all of this. It's really wonderful. Yeah, Athena and Poseidon. I'm looking forward to next week. Um, And Nick, would you like to share your phone number and other contact information? Yes, I, I would love them to do that by email if they may. And uh, my email address is N-I-C-K-N-Y-N-Y, the figure one, at gmail.com. And I'd be very happy if uh, anyone has any questions or answers or observations. Please, please say hello. Thank you. And, Michael, do you have an email as well where people can contact you? Yes, it's Michael Duncan. One at hotmail.com, M I C H A E L D U N K I N, the figure one at hotmail.com. You can email us, but please do uh, check out our YouTube channel because we have, we have celestial team meetings, we have uh, celestial gatherings, songs, artwork, and it, we have a number of videos that talk about the new worldwide religion of love. So uh, check those out, learn a little bit about that. And we want to wish Athena a happy birthday. Oh, that's oh. right. Happy birthday, happy birthday Athena. Athena. I, I will convey that to you. Um, and, again, thank you so much for being on tonight. I, I really enjoyed uh, uh, hearing everyone's voice and talking about these things. And uh, um, I'm looking forward to the next time we're able to do it again. Wonderful. Yes, and uh, don't. Don't miss uh, next Thursday night, friends, from 6 to 7 Pacific time. We'll be talking about uh, Poseidon and Athena's role in the, ma- in the magisterial mission. It's very interesting. It will re- Maybe the seraphic transport can be utilized in some of, the, oh, yes. some of it. Oh, yeah. definitely. That, that is Much awesome. Much everyone. <laughs> Much and thank you, Nick, and to you as well. And thanks to all who joined us uh, tonight. Uh, Until uh, we next all meet, uh, may your journeys be joyous and your adventures spectacular.
Olympian blessings to all who have joined us on our adventure. Now, go forth and create a better world, one filled with light and love. On behalf of the pride of Olympus and her crew, may your journeys be joyous. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.